I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reform on the radio, you know, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right, I want to welcome everybody back to the podcast. My name is Tim, and you are listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. So I've got two very special guests with me right now, and I'm going to introduce you to them in a little bit, and we've got a very good episode. But before we do that, I want to make uh, two plugs here. The first thing I want to do is promote a new series that Timothy Kaufman is doing. And many of you know Timothy Kaufman. He's a longtime friend and contributor to the podcast, and also to the network. I highly recommend his stuff and I, I want to promote this new series he's doing. The series is titled The Diving Board in which Tim is jumping, figuratively speaking, from the diving board into the deep end of history to show that many Roman Catholic apologists and many Roman Catholic converts are merely swimming in the shallow ends of the kiddie pool when they speak of history. We often hear Roman Catholic apologists claim that the Roman Catholic Church can trace its roots all the way back to the early church fathers and, and the beginnings of the church. They claim that to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And while many of these Roman Catholic apologists will claim that the evangelical Protestant faith is a novelty of the early part of the 16th century, it is actually the Roman Catholic faith that is a novelty of the latter part of the 4th century. The Protestant Church needs to be aware of these false claims and needs to be equipped to deal with them. Well, Timothy Kaufman is just the man to equip you. For example, I was recently told by a Roman Catholic apologist that all of the early church fathers believed that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was sinless. However, Timothy Kaufman has rightly pointed out in the past that Mary's sinlessness was not proposed as an idea until 373 AD. It has no historical basis prior to the latter part of the 4th century. Furthermore, her domitian and assumption find no historical basis until the 5th or 6th century. Her immaculate conception was not even defined as formal dogma until, get this, 1854 AD, and her bodily assumption into heaven was not formalized as dogma until 1950. So, obviously, 
when they claim that all of the early church fathers believe these things, they're not representing history accurately. Well, Timothy Kaufman has put out two episodes in which he goes over statements and arguments made by Father Ray Ryland. And what you're going to see is that Ray Ryland is a bit of a historical revisionist when he's trying to defend the Roman Catholic faith. If you listen to these two episodes, you're going to understand very quickly that Timothy Kaufman is a first-rate historian and a first-rate theologian. I can't recommend this series to you enough, and I want all of our listeners to be sure to check it out. Tim is uh, is diving from the diving board into the deep end of history. Uh, the other plug that I want to make is I want to, uh, and I'm, I'm going to have to tell my friend Colleen Sharp that she's uh, going to have to rebrand her podcast because I want to recommend people to... One of the episodes that she did, uh, one of the most recent episodes that she did, the episode is uh, titled Federal Vision with Dewey Roberts Part 1. Uh, part 2, I think, is going to come out next week. I'm not really sure uh, what days they drop, but I do subscribe to them. And I, I got this uh, yesterday. I listened to it yesterday. It's very, very good. And it's episode number 76. So Theology Gals is a podcast that's done by women and for women. But this is a great episode. I think that everybody needs to be informed about the Federal Vision heresy. Uh, Dewey Roberts does call it heresy. Um, He's extremely knowledgeable from what I gathered. Uh, He just published a book. And uh, you can find out more information from Theology Gals. I want to just go ahead and plug that to our listeners. Be sure to check them out. And that's, uh, I'm recommending this to men as well. This is a great episode. So Colleen, you might have to rebrand. I know it's a podcast for women by women, but, uh, this is a really great episode. Everybody should check it out. Okay. So let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. We are going to be talking about baptism. Uh, well, correction here. I'm not going to be talking about baptism. I brought on two very special guests to talk about baptism. Uh, the first, uh, person that I want to reintroduce to the podcast is uh, Pastor Patrick Hines. Now, uh, this is just a formality. Uh, Pastor Hines really doesn't need a an introduction, but maybe you're listening to the podcast for the first time. Um, Pastor Hines does the Protestant Witness podcast, um, and he's got some really, really good episodes. If you haven't heard his episode on the Revoice Conference, that is an extremely good episode, and, and I want, want to encourage everybody to listen to that. And Pastor Hines is part of the network I found out about Pastor Hines through Tom Geoditis from the Trinity Foundation. And Pastor Hines has been a tremendous blessing to us here at Thorn Crown Ministries, and uh, I just I can't say enough about him. But Pastor Hines, uh, let me give you an opportunity to introduce yourself, just in case, as I said before, maybe it's somebody's first time listening to the podcast. I want them to get to know you. Uh, so can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, my name is Patrick Hines, and I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I've lived the majority of, of my 43 years just far, uh, thus far. Um, about six years ago, I moved to Northeast Tennessee to take a, a Presbyterian PCA church down here. I was a pastor at a, a Presbyterian church in Cincinnati for four years, and I was also an elder there for six other years outside of those four years. And then I've been here for the last six years. So now I'm the pastor of Brittle Heights Presbyterian uh, Church, and uh, things are going going well here. And um, my my tenth child is due in uh, December, and uh, that's 
that's about it. I'm not an overly interesting person, but I appreciate your, your kind words, Timothy, uh, uh, for sure. All right. Well, thank you for the introduction, Pastor Hines, and it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast again. Um, my next guest is, his name is Brandon Adams, and Brandon, I'm not really sure if you're the CEO or general manager or, well, I, I guess you're more than the general manager, but uh, Brandon is the president or CEO of the website 1689federalism.com. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm I'm just the guy that uh, puts forward what everybody else says. I just kind of collect collect it all together on the website there. So I guess that's the best description. Well, I heard about you, Brandon, first when we started to deal with New Covenant Theology, and that's how I found your website. And I want to recommend all of our listeners to check it out. But Brandon is new to the podcast. He's never been on with us, so it's a real pleasure to have him here with us to talk about baptism and covenant theology with Pastor Hines. Now, Brandon, for our listeners who may not know who you are, can you just give us a brief introduction about yourself? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Idaho. I went to school down in California uh, and uh, started attending a Reformed Baptist church plant down there. Um, Turned out to be Reformed Baptist. I didn't know what that was at the time, but I was introduced to expositional preaching and and really heard the gospel presented in in detail there, and um, uh, was saved under that ministry and was baptized there. Uh, my wife was as well. We went to school together, and uh, we got married and stuck around there in Southern California for a few more years, about 10 years in total, and uh, then eventually made our way back up here to Washington State, where we've been for about uh, four years, and uh, we have two boys, uh, five and eight, and uh, I run a small video production company doing uh, corporate videos. So that's that's me in a nutshell. Well, Brandon, uh, I, I again, I appreciate you coming on to talk with us today. Um, and we're going to just jump right into this. Uh, let me go ahead and let everybody know what the general outline is. This is going to be an informal debate slash discussion. Uh, but I do want both of these men to start off with a positive case for their position. So we're going to start off with Pastor Hines. Uh, he can have up to 20 minutes to just make a positive case for his position. And uh, then we're going to ask Brandon to follow up with a positive case for his position. Brandon Adams is a Reformed Baptist and Pastor Hines is a Presbyterian. Initially, we wanted to talk about baptism, but from what I understand, they're also going to talk a lot about covenant theology because that really sort of shapes the way in which each side sees baptism. So after that, then we're just going to go into a discussion. Now I'm going to sit back. I'm not going to get involved. I I, I really don't like when I see the moderator or the, the person who's just facilitating the discussion take sides and then you have a, a discussion with two people versus one. So I'm not going to get involved. I think both of these guys uh, are well equipped to discuss the topic at hand. And uh, and I'm just going to sort of remind them in the background about time uh, uh, time issues or, or uh, just try to direct the conversation if needed. But uh, again, I want to say thank you to both of you. And Pastor Hines, we'll just hand it off to you to get us started. 
Okay, sure. Um, before I before I push start, I just wanted to uh, to thank Brandon for uh, uh, speaking with me on the phone yesterday. I really enjoyed talking to him, and and I watched um, your little short on YouTube called Useless, and it was just great. I just loved it. Uh, I forwarded it to my whole family. Um, really great uh, presentation of, of mercy and the gospel, and uh, a really really remarkable job, Brandon. You're, you're a really uh, really unique and very gifted filmmaker. I just wanted to to say that to you. All right, you guys ready? I'm ready to go. I'm pushing start now. There are two primary covenants in scripture. The covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon a condition of perfect and personal obedience. And then the covenant of grace. Westminster Confession of Faith 7.3 says that after man fell, the Lord was pleased to make a second, uh, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. The one covenant of grace was administered differently before and after the coming of Christ. Westminster Confession chapter 7 ends with the excellent summary, quote, There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations, end quote. Those are the grand organizing principles of God's word. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. There is one gospel in scripture and only one, one church in scripture and only one. Stephen called Israel in the wilderness the ecclesia, the church, the congregation in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This one gospel was preached to Abraham, as Paul teaches us in Galatians 3.8. And the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3, decided there. The gospel, this one and only gospel, was also preached to Israel, Hebrews 4.2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Jesus taught us specifically and clearly what it was that Abraham himself was looking forward to. John 8:56. Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham and the Old Testament saints were looking forward to heaven itself, to the city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. John the Baptist also taught that in the ultimate sense, one could not be born into the Abrahamic covenant, and he sternly warned people against thinking that they could be born into it. He said in Matthew 3, 9, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. From the beginning, there has always been one and only one way of being made right with God, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. What Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the Old Testament church believed was the exact same gospel message that we believe today. The only difference between them and us is this, how much they knew about that gospel. That's why Jesus said, Abraham was looking forward to my day. He saw it and was glad. We know much more about the gospel than they do, but it is still the same gospel, the same way of justification, the same promises, and the same fulfillment of those promises. Paul keys in on this central text, Genesis 15:6, Abraham's justification repeatedly in Romans and Galatians. That text says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The call of Abraham brought about an advance in the one covenant of grace that was definitive for all time to come. In the Gospel of Luke, both Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, and Mary herself both see the conception and birth of Jesus as the direct fulfillment of the gospel promise made to Abraham. Mary says in her Magnificat in Luke 1, 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Zacharias in his Benedictus says in Luke 1, 72, To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. 
God also promised land to Abraham and his descendants. But there's a great error in the thinking of Reformed Baptists on this point. David Kingdon and Fred Malone say, quote, There is, after all, embedded in the covenant promise of Genesis 17, the promise of the land of Canaan. But not even Pierre Marcel would insist that the infant seed of believers are now promised this, end quote. But of course, Marcel, Burkhoff, Raymond, Dabney, Calvin, Warfield, the Hodges, Miller, and all the rest of us would insist this and should insist this. We are given this land promise because my ten children and Lord willing, their children are heirs of the land promise if they believe. The fulfillment of the land promise is revealed in the New Testament as not limited to the typological land of Canaan as it was prior to the coming of Christ, but to the entire redeemed created cosmos. Romans 8, 21 and following, and Romans 4, 13, Paul says, For the promise to Abraham that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. David Kingdon and Fred Malone both argue, along with Paul Jewett, that every Israelite was entitled to the land of Canaan by birth, regardless of their spiritual relation to God. This is false. The entire generation of Israel that came out of Egypt in the Exodus died in the wilderness, with two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. And why? Why did they not inherit the land of Canaan if, as Kingdon, Malone, and Jewett argue, they were entitled to it by birth? They didn't enter because they did not believe. They did not have faith. Hebrews 3.18. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You didn't get justification or the land without faith. Not a single promise God made Abraham, not one, was guaranteed by birth. One received neither justification nor the land without faith. The Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are, as Louis Burkhoff says in his systematic theology, essentially identical in the following way. The unity and continuity of the covenant in both dispensations follows from the fact that the mediator is the same, the condition is the same, namely faith, and the blessings are the same, namely justification, regeneration, spiritual gifts, and eternal life. Peter gave those who were under conviction on the day of Pentecost the assurance that the promise was unto them and to their children, Acts 2.39. Paul argues in Romans 4.13-18 and Galatians 3.13-18 that the giving of the law did not make the promise of none effect so that it still holds in the new dispensation. And the writer of Hebrews points out that the promise to Abraham was confirmed with an oath so that New Testament believers may derive comfort from its immutability, Hebrews 6, 13 to 18. This is why we cannot and we must not look at the new covenant as a difference in kind. Rather, it is a difference in degree of knowledge. We know more about the one true gospel that, as Paul says, was preached to Abraham, as Hebrews says, was preached to Israel. We know more about it than the people did prior to the coming of Christ, but it was still the coming of Christ that their faith was in. Paul hammers this point as hard as possible in Romans chapter 4. Abraham was justified by faith alone in the gospel prior to the giving of the law, Romans 4, 1 through 5. David was justified by faith alone in the gospel after the giving of the law, but prior to the coming of Christ, Romans 4, 6 through 11, just as we ourselves are justified by faith alone after the coming of Christ. Every believer, before and after the coming of Christ, had their faith in Christ, as Jesus said in John 8:56. And all believers fulfill directly the Abrahamic covenant. Count the stars if indeed you can, God told Abram in Genesis chapter 15. So shall your descendants be. Paul quotes that passage in Romans 4 saying, this refers to every single true believer for all time. One gospel, one people, one way of salvation, one covenant of grace. And the visible church has always included professing believers and their children, their households. This holds true before and after the coming of Christ. Now, Hebrews chapter 8 is critically important in terms of our understanding of the new covenant and its contrast with uh, what that passage in Jeremiah 31 calls the old covenant. 
Brandon in his video made the very serious error of arguing that the Abrahamic covenant is actually part of the Old Covenant. Hebrews 6, 13 to 18 is quite clear, however, that not only is the Abrahamic covenant based upon an oath sworn by God, but it is also immutable. It is not subject to change in any way. It can't be expire or be modified. Paul agrees with this in Galatians 3, 15 to 18, when he said that the giving of the law in no way altered the promise made previous to Abraham and is, in point of fact, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, entering the very presence of God behind the veil as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But the most serious error in conflating the Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic slash Sinaitic covenant, what Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31 calls the Old Covenant, the most serious error in conflating the Abrahamic covenant and the Old Covenant is the very last verse of, of Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 13 says, quote, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Folks, Paul said that the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel, Galatians 3.8. If the Abrahamic covenant is part of the old covenant, as Brandon says, then we are left with the intolerable error that the gospel is growing old, obsolete, and is ready to vanish away. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which is cited in Hebrews 8, is that grand prophecy of the new covenant. It is not like the covenant, singular, which God made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This is the Mosaic or Sinaitic covenant, the Old Covenant. This is the giving of the law. The Old Covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31 is not the Abrahamic promise. These are not one covenant. Rather, as Paul teaches in Galatians 4, 21 to 31, they are, as he says specifically, two covenants. Galatians 4, 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai. And folks, that's what Jeremiah 31 is talking about. Hebrews 8 is talking about. Which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This argument in Galatians 4, 21 to 31 makes absolutely no sense. If the Abrahamic covenant and the old covenant are the same covenant, if they are one covenant and not two covenants, as Paul specifically says, to assert that the old covenant and the Abrahamic covenant are the same covenant destroys Paul's entire explication of justification by faith alone on the basis of the promise to Abraham and not the law given at Sinai. The law, Paul says in Romans 4.15, brings about wrath. And that's why he says in Romans 4.16, Therefore, justification is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, meaning Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, what does this have to do with baptism? Everything. Everything. Genesis 17 is the passage in which God institutes the sign of circumcision as the sign of the gospel that Paul, Jesus, John the Baptist, and all New Testament writers tell us plainly that Abraham believed. Genesis 17, verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And listen closely to verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Paul's own understanding of circumcision is vitally important, as all of us are bound to agree with him, since he is an author of inspired scripture. Romans 2.28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. How can the new covenant be the only covenant in which regeneration is promised when circumcision is a sign of heart circumcision, which means regeneration prior to the institution of the new covenant? Paul says in Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Far from being a mere temporal sign of earthly blessings, circumcision was the sign and seal of the highest spiritual blessing God gives to sinners, regeneration and justification by faith. As Paul says, it is circumcision of the heart that it's a sign of. And this is not a new covenant spin on circumcision. Circumcision was always a sign of regeneration and personal justification. Deuteronomy 10, 16, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Jeremiah 4, 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. Circumcision is a sign of regeneration. I have heard many Baptists assert that circumcision is a foreshadowing of regeneration. But as many times as I have heard this, I have never heard a text cited in support of it. Brandon, in his video response to me, made the assertion that circumcision is not what Paul says it is in Romans 4.11, but rather is, quote, an oath of loyalty to keep the law of God perfectly, end quote. No biblical texts were provided to substantiate this, and I really wonder how circumcision could be an oath to keep the law perfectly when it was instituted 430 years before the law was even given. Surely we're not going to be told that it was an oath to keep the law of God written on the heart or something like that? If so, based upon what text of scripture? But let's now focus on the last couple of minutes upon one of the key differences between us. We have profound differences in our ecclesiologies, our doctrines of the church. We do not believe the visible church is defined in the same way. I, as a Presbyterian, believe the visible church is all who profess the true religion together with their children, and that only believers upon profession of faith ought to be baptized and then their households as well. Baptists hold that the visible church is those who profess the true religion, period, and therefore only professing believers ought to be baptized. This is, of course, a radical termination, not a mere modification, mind you, but a termination of the principle that the visible church would include professing believers in their households, and this would have caused an incredible stir among God's people had it been the case. We believe the 2,000-year-old household principle, believers and their children, carries very clearly into the New Covenant era. There is, I would assert, no evidence of any kind that this principle, established and commanded by God himself, has changed, and there is, in fact, much positive evidence that it has continued. In Genesis 17, 6-12, I just read that whole passage, you have the institution of the sign of circumcision. Abraham believes and then is circumcised as a sign of his justification by faith, Romans 4.11. Now, had Abraham been thinking like a Baptist, he would no doubt have objected to God's insistence that this sign of justification be given to his infants who lacked the mental capacity or physical capacity to make a profession of faith. So why did Abraham circumcise his infants and give them the sign of personal justification by faith? 
because God told him to. The appendix to the 1689 London Baptist Confession asserts the following about circumcision. Quote, Therefore circumcision was of right to cease when the Gentiles were brought in to the faith. End quote. This is also clearly biblically in error. Recall that when the tenth plague is about to happen, God institutes the Passover, and a provision is made for Gentiles to join themselves to the church and to partake the Passover. Listen closely. This is Exodus chapter 12, verse 48. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. If the authors of the London Baptist Confession appendix were correct, this would never have been said, and any Gentile who approached God's people wanting to be part of the church and to take the Passover would have been told, sorry, Israelites only allowed. Thus, Exodus 12.48 demonstrates the London Baptist Confession divines are simply wrong. As far as God requiring Gentiles to be circumcised with their households before they could join the church and partake of the Passover, I would ask, does this remind us of anything? Yes, baptism. Clearly, the assertion that circumcision would cease as soon as Gentiles were brought into the faith is false since provision was made for Gentiles to receive it way back in Exodus 12:48. In Acts chapter 2, where you have the first Christian sermon ever preached, you have the sign pronounced, baptism, just like circumcision is pronounced in Genesis 17. And you have the same three categories listed that are listed in Genesis 17, 6 through 12. You, your children, he who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendants. Acts 2.39, you, your children, as many as are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Personally, I agree with Ligon Duncan when he said in his seminary course on covenant theology, quote, if Peter is really trying here to emphasize the termination of the household principle and the radical individualism of the administration of the new covenant being limited only to professing adult believers, this is quite literally the worst possible way he could have put this, end quote. I can only say amen. Some have argued that circumcision was rightly administered to terrible people like Ahab and Manasseh. This is also false. Church discipline was in place in the church prior to the coming of Christ as well. The Old Testament contains numerous church discipline passages where the Sabbath breaker and the idolater were to be cut off from the people. In fact, Paul quotes those very church discipline passages from Deuteronomy in the book of 1 Corinthians when describing church discipline after the coming of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.13, Paul wrote, But those who are outside God judges, therefore, quote, put away from yourselves the evil person. There he's quoting Deuteronomy 13.5, Deuteronomy 17.7 7, and 12, Deuteronomy 21.21, 21, etc. Sadly, the church prior to the coming of Christ was about as good at church discipline as we are today. What we see clearly in the New Testament is that the household principle is still in place with regard to the administration of the one covenant of grace in its post-Advent sign, baptism. Those who profess faith are baptized, like Abraham was circumcised after he believed, and like households were circumcised after they professed a belief to partake of the Passover if they were non-Jews and wanted to. We're all familiar with the household baptism passages, so there's no need for me to read them all, and that household baptisms were the order of the day in the New Testament, plainly. So question, how does that fit? with the Baptist insistence that the household principle has been terminated, not modified, terminated. What about our children and their place in the church today? Obviously, no Baptist would argue that we should leave our children at home on Sundays. But are they to be instructed that they are participants in the corporate worship of God? Or are they mere observers and non-participants? I have heard of one Baptist, one Reformed Baptist, who very consistently does not allow his children to pray, either at home or at church, since only the regenerate can do so, and also does not allow his children to sing God's praises at Sabbath worship services. This is tragic and sinful, but very consistent, I'm afraid. For only true Christians can pray and worship God, right? 
I'm curious about this and just how consistent Baptists are or not with their stated beliefs. The organic household component of the administration of the covenant of grace clearly has continued into the new covenant era. Children are just as much a part of the visible church as they ever have been. Paul addresses children directly in Ephesians 6.1, Colossians 3.20. In closing, I wanted to address why I generally speak of these things the way I do. Uh, the thing that Brandon misunderstood and misrepresented repeatedly in his video. As a pastor and as a teacher, clarity and understanding are my goals. I want to be understood clearly. Now, there's a couple ways that one could describe this. You tell me which one is clearer. Number one, to put it this way, you could not be born into this covenant, and you could be born into this covenant. Or to say, you could not be born into this covenant, but you could be born into this covenant's visible administration. Which one of those is clearer? The second, obviously. That's why I use it. What about this idea of 1689 federalism? In a dialogue that Brandon had with Reformed Baptist theologian Dr. James White, uh, Dr. White asked Brandon, quote, are you suggesting modern Reformed Baptists have misunderstood their own confession? Brandon's response, yes. I'm asking because 1689 federalism teaches that Abraham was a member of the new covenant because regeneration is a blessing exclusive to the new covenant. It rejects the multiple administrations view of the covenant of grace and identifies the new covenant alone as the covenant of grace, to which Dr. White replied, quote, I see. I would think the writer to the Hebrews would have mentioned such a claim, end quote. I wholeheartedly agree with Dr. White. Not only the writer to the Hebrews, but the rest of the apostles in general, and Paul in particular, had every conceivable opportunity to mention this and simply does not. Also, we already saw in Deuteronomy 10, 16, Jeremiah 4, 4, Romans 4, 11, that circumcision was a sign of regeneration and justification, and therefore regeneration is not exclusive to the new covenant. But as far as this idea of Abraham himself being in the new covenant, Hebrews 9, 15 to 18 contradicts this very forcefully. Hebrews 9, 16 says, For where there is a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a covenant is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. The death of the testator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, is what historically enacts the new covenant. It is a covenant that goes into effect at the death of Christ on the cross. An effectual covenant only with the elect is therefore nothing new. Paul's own understanding, Jesus' understanding, John the Baptist's own understanding of the Abrahamic covenant is that while one could be born into its visible administration, one could not be born into what it actually promised. Paul in Romans 4, 16 to 18, cites Genesis 17:5 and Genesis 15:5, and argues that the fulfillment of those promises is in every single believer in Jesus Christ that would ever come to know him. The administration of this one covenant of grace has always included adults who profess it together with their children. This is very clearly continued in the new covenant era as we see individuals repenting and believing and then households being baptized. Very simple, very consistent. If this radical termination has happened where children are no longer to be in any sense part of the visible church as they have been for the previous 2,000 years, where is the evidence? For 4,000 years, God's people have brought their children to receive the sign of God's one gospel. That gospel was preached to Abraham, to Israel, and now to us. The new covenant is not a difference in kind, but in degree of knowledge. The visible church for the first 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ was professing believers and their children. From Christ to today, the visible church is still believers and their children. Household circumcisions and now household baptisms. Simple, straightforward, and clear. And that's the end of my presentation. All right, Pastor Hines, thank you very much for starting us off. And uh, Brandon, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Sure. Uh, thank you, Patrick, for taking the time to prepare that and uh, prepare a summary of your views there and put it forward for us to consider. And, uh, you know, thank you for doing this this dialogue here. Um, just uh, before I start there, I just wanted to mention that I had a chance to listen to some of your podcasts, not all of them, but some of them. And I, I appreciate uh, what you've 
What you've said about uh, John Piper and some of his uh, problematic views of justification, they echo same things I've, I've said for a number of years on my blog. And, uh, you know, I especially appreciate that you understand that what happened at the cross was uh, the eschatological judgment brought forward and rendered here in time. And I think that's just huge for people to understand. So, um, yeah, just uh, my presentation is going to be a bit shorter because uh, I want to spend more time kind of back and forth here. Um, uh, let's see, Tim mentioned that uh, I hold to a view known as 1689 federalism. Uh, that's just a reference to uh, a view held by the, the vast majority of particular Baptists in the 17th century. Um, just real briefly here in the 20th century, uh, confessionalism kind of fell out of favor amongst Baptists and amongst uh, uh, some Presbyterians as well. And it was recovered kind of in the 50s, 60s, and some of this historic Baptist covenant theology was was lost in the process, and uh, what was developed was uh, something a little closer to Westminster. And so, 1689 federalism just kind of refers to this this older view that's slightly different. Um, I'm going to be presenting that view. I'm going to be presenting my own personal take on that view. Um, not everybody who holds to 1689 federalism will necessarily agree with everything that I say here. I'm not necessarily representing every single detail the way that historic particular Baptists might have. I'm presenting my own view informed by scripture first and foremost, but also by these Baptists historically and, and other Baptists today. Uh, so Patrick opened with the, uh, the important distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Uh, this is the, the law gospel distinction of the Reformation, and it refers to two different ways of obtaining eternal life, through works of the law or through faith in Christ apart from works. And as the Reformation developed, uh, this became solidified in what's known as the covenant of works, covenant of grace distinction. So there are only two covenants that deal with e eternal life, the covenant of works with Adam and the covenant of grace in Christ. The covenant of works with Adam is that uh, Adam did not have eternal life as he was created. He was offered eternal life upon the condition of personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience to the law. That was the covenant of works. In the predetermined wisdom of God, Adam fell. Now, knowing this would happen before time began, the father offered the son a kingdom and a people to redeem if the son would take on the form of man and do what Adam failed to do, and also to bear the curse that Adam brought upon man. And this is known as the covenant of redemption. So because the son had agreed to do this in the covenant of redemption before time began, when Adam fell, God had mercy. He did not immediately cast Adam and Eve into hell but he delayed that judgment. He had mercy upon them. The full extent of the curse was delayed and the hope of the Redeemer was revealed and preached to fallen man uh, in Genesis 3.15. And then in the course of time, the son came to earth. He obeyed the law, bore the t penalty that we deserve on the cross and thereby established the covenant of grace, which scripture calls the new covenant. Now the benefits that Christ earned for his people are applied to them by the Holy Spirit in the effectual call. And this is when the, new, uh, the covenant of grace is made with the elect. The covenant of grace is union with Christ. Union with Christ is a legal covenant union wherein we share our sin with Christ and he shares his righteousness with us. Regeneration, faith, forgiveness of sins, the imputation of Christ's righteousness all flow from union with Christ. All of the elect who have been united to Christ are part of the assembly of the firstborn, the kingdom of Christ, the body of Christ, the church.
Now this assembly can be seen from two perspectives, from God's and from man's. God's infallible perspective is what we refer to as the invisible church. Man's fallible perspective of this same church is what we call the visible church. So God sees it as it is, we see it through our fallible perspective. Because union with Christ is invisible, uh, God has instructed us to identify members of the church through their profession of faith, even though this may be fallible. Baptism is a sign of union with Christ, a sign of the person's fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. The proper subjects of baptism are those who have professed faith in Christ. This visible sign of union with Christ was not given to the church until the covenant of grace was established in the death of Christ and promulgated at Pentecost. The question then becomes, what about Old Testament saints? What about Abraham? What about Moses? Which scripture clearly testifies, believe the same gospel as Patrick explained. Well, we completely agree. The gospel was absolutely preached. The same gospel was preached to them, although more darkly and with less clarity and fewer details. The same gospel was preached to them. They were saved in the same way. They believed the promise. They believed the gospel. They were saved in the same way we are, which is through union with Christ, which is the new covenant of grace. Christ is mediator of the new covenant. The benefits of his atonement are applied through new covenant union. Old Testament saints were members of the New Covenant. They had this New Covenant union with Christ. It's the only way they could be saved. Christ's benefits were applied to the elect in the Old Testament in anticipation of Christ's work because Christ's work was a legal certainty as promised in the Covenant of Redemption. You can consider this uh, an analogy that's sometimes used is um, a payday loan. Right. Your actual payday is not for two weeks, but you need money now. You can go to a payday loan center and get an advance on your paycheck and get the money now. In the same way, Old Testament saints could benefit from Christ's work, which was yet to come, and share in those blessings because Christ's work was a guaranteed legal certainty. Um, and this idea that the Old Testament saints were members of the New Covenant and um, received its blessings and its benefits is really no different from the question of how the Old Testament saints could benefit from Christ's atonement prior to the atonement actually happening. How could they be forgiven for their sins by the blood of Christ if Christ had not yet shed his blood? The, the two issues are intertwined and they're really one and the same. Now, in addition to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, God also made various other covenants with men throughout history. The Noahic covenant was not the covenant of grace, though it revealed various things about the covenant of grace through typology and prophecy. It was made with all of fallen mankind under Noah, including creatures. It did not promise eternal life. It promised common preservation. The Abrahamic covenant was not the covenant of grace, though it revealed various things about the covenant of grace through typology and prophecy. It was made with Abraham and his natural offspring through the line of Isaac and Jacob. It did not promise eternal life. It promised numerous natural offspring who would inherit the land of Canaan. And these were to be a type of Christ and the church and heaven. And it promised that Abraham would be the father of the promised Messiah who would bless all nations. 
by establishing the new covenant. This is what Paul refers to when he says the gospel was preached to Abraham. Just as the gospel was preached to Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis 3.15, what that means is that the coming Redeemer was revealed to Abraham insofar as the Abrahamic covenant promised that he would be the father of this Messiah who would come and bless all nations. In that way, the gospel was revealed to Abraham. That doesn't mean the Abrahamic covenant was the covenant of grace, because the specific Abrahamic promise was that Abraham would be the father of the Messiah. That's not a promise of the covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant was not the covenant of grace, though it revealed various things about the covenant of grace through typology and prophecy. It was an addendum or elaboration of the first promise of the Abrahamic covenant, specifying the terms upon which the offspring of Abraham would inherit the land. It did not promise eternal life. It promised temporal blessings in the land of Canaan upon the condition of obedience to Mosaic law, and it threatened temporal curse and exile for disobedience. The Davidic covenant was not the covenant of grace, though it revealed various things about the covenant of grace through typology and prophecy. It was a reiteration and elaboration of both the first and second promises of the Abrahamic covenant. It did not promise eternal life. It promised that David's offspring would rule over the kingdom of Israel in the land of Canaan with God dwelling in their midst in the temple his son would build upon the condition of his offspring's obedience to Mosaic law. However, it also promised that in spite of his son's disobedience, their failure to obey Mosaic law, he would yet have one offspring, the same one promised to Abraham, that would rule forever. So these three covenants together reveal the work of Christ by way of typology and analogy so that we would be able to better understand what Christ had accomplished when he came to earth and died on the cross. But we want to be careful not to blend the type and the anti-type together. They revealed great things about the gospel by way of typology. But a type and an anti-type are two separate things. They are not one and the same, and we want to be careful not to blend them and smash them together. We need to clearly distinguish between the two of them. Um, in a nutshell, that's the, the Baptist response to the Reformed Pato baptist arguments. There are a lot more we could go into detail, a lot more things that Patrick brought out, but really at the heart of it is the belief that the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace, and it is the same covenant as the new covenant. Um, and so if that's not the case, then the rest of the arguments don't follow. Uh, we don't believe that the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant. We don't believe they are the same covenant. We believe they are two different covenants, although the Abrahamic covenant certainly relates to and is anticipatory and preparatory and subservient to the covenant of grace, uh, yet it is distinct from it. Um, and so that's all I'd like to say for my opening statement there, and the rest of it we can just uh, get into it back and forth. I think that'll be a little more profitable. All right, and we are going to get into a discussion in just a little bit, but first let's go ahead and play a quick commercial from the Trinity Foundation, and we will be right back. Hello, this is Tom Juditis, President of the Trinity Foundation. Thank you for listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. For more information on the Trinity Foundation, please visit our website at www.trinityfoundation.org. There you can read, download, and or print over 300 articles or listen to over 200 MP3 audio lectures and check out our over 65 titles of books and other media. And if you are between the ages of 16 through 25, 
you can enter our 2018 Christian World USA contest on the topic of the book, The Emperor Has No Clothes, Richard B. Gaffin Jr.'s Doctrine of Justification, by author Stephen Cunha. Thank you, and remember, the Bible alone is the Word of God. All right, I want to say thank you to Tom for that. I want to encourage our listeners to check out the Trinity Foundation. And uh, let's go ahead and continue with the discussion. Uh, Pastor Hines, I'm going to ask you to lead us off, and I'll just give it over to you. All right, hey, Brandon, thank you for your uh, your presentation. I have uh, uh, some questions about your understanding of the Abrahamic Covenant. You said the Abrahamic Covenant, as I think I wrote this down the way you said it, is that he would have natural offspring and that those natural offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. Did I hear that right? Yes. Okay. Um, how do you understand then Paul's citation of Genesis 17, 5 in Romans chapter 4, um, verses uh 16, 17, and 18, Paul says, therefore, justification is by faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That's Genesis 17, 5, the promises made to Abraham. And then in Genesis, uh, or uh, in Romans 4, 18, the next verse, he says, who contrary to hope and hope believes, so he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now that's Genesis 15, 5. That's where God took Abram outside and said, look at the stars and count them. Paul's understanding of that is that is fulfilled by every single elect believer that would ever, ever be saved. But are you saying that that what, what God meant in Genesis 15, 5 was that you will have physical offspring that will physically inherit Canaan? Yeah, the answer there is that Paul's elaborating upon the typology, typology of Israel, and that's what he does throughout his letters. Uh, most of the time when he's interpret, uh, quoting the Old Testament, he's doing so in a typological manner. How do you know that? That is typological it's just, only. Well, let me finish explaining how. it's. I, I mean, are you denying that there is typological interpretation in any of Paul's quotation of the Old Testament, or are you just challenging this particular passage? No, I'm challenging this particular one. There's sure. definitely a typo typological stuff there. Yeah, so I'm just... Yeah, okay. So, uh, as I explained, the first Abrahamic promise is the way I articulate it. The first Abrahamic promise concerning Abraham's physical offspring in the land of Canaan was given as a type of uh, Christ and the church and heaven, the which relates to the second Abrahamic promise that uh, Christ would be born from Abraham. And so... The reason I would understand Paul to be interpreting that typologically is because that promise was fulfilled in the nation of Israel. They were numbered as, as many as the stars of heaven and um, uh, as many of the sands of the seashore. That's repeated in scripture several times and says that the promises made to Abraham were fulfilled. Uh, so there was, there was a letter fulfillment um, to that promise to the nation of Israel. There was a secondary meaning, a secondary fulfillment, so there is a, a, a typological fulfillment and an anti-typological fulfillment. Uh, and so I would, I would say that that promise was fulfilled in the nation of Israel. Um, you see that referenced uh, Solomon's dedication of the temple, for example, uh, and a few other places. And then it is also fulfilled insofar as at the same time, God promised that Abraham would be the father of the Messiah who would come to bless all nations. Therefore, this gospel was revealed to Abraham. He saw beyond the nation of Israel, right? He was not limited. He didn't think this was just about his physical offspring. It was beyond that. But it was also 
about his physical offspring. It was both. One was a type of the other. Uh, and so that's... Were the, physical, were the physical offspring of Abraham guaranteed the land by birth? Uh, upon condition of their obedience to the law. Uh, it was guaranteed that some of Abraham's offspring would inherit the land, but no particular offspring would inherit the land apart from obedience to the law. So their, so their inheritance of the land, like going into and inheriting the land, was conditioned on their obedience? Correct. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, a promise that God made. It, the, God's promise in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 of land is conditioned on their obedience to the Mosaic law? Yeah, let me pull up a verse here one second. Um, verse here is the uh, beginning of Jeremiah 11. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. Uh, then I answered, So be it, Lord. Uh, and the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words to the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warn your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even in this day, obey my voice. Yet they did not obey. Um, therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Right. I understand their, their being allowed to stay in the land is conditioned on their obedience because all the covenant curses are pronounced by the, the prophets. I'm just talking about their initial possession of the land. That was conditioned on obedience. Well, that's why the first generation didn't enter. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Um, do, did you want to ask, uh, ask a question? or? All right, just We can just have a conversation. I don't want to okay. try okay. to keep track of who's asking what. <laughs> Hey, I, was, I wanted to I wanted to ask. I mean, do you do you agree with the the appendix of the London Baptist Confession when it says circumcision um, would become null and void as soon as Gentiles embrace the faith? How do you understand that in the light of the fact that that provision is made at the at the Passover for Gentiles to join the church if all if their household is circumcised and they they can take the Passover then the provision is made for non-Jews to receive it right at the at the Exodus event. Yeah, I, I would have to review the appendix to, uh, I don't re recall the particular context that they're, they're in there. I'd have to review it to comment specifically on that. I, th I think they're just referring to the era of the New Covenant. Okay. Um, I think that's probably what they have in mind there, um, is that once Christ had come and the gospel went out to all nations, that's probably what they're referring to there. Um, and so uh, with the Passover stuff... I, just understand that the perspective you're coming from, the presupposition, or you know, based on your study of Scripture, is that Israel was the church, and so when you see Gentiles uh, joining with Israel, you see that as Gentiles joining the church, professing saving faith in Christ, and receiving yeah. the, the sign of the covenant of grace. Right. And we wouldn't necessarily see that. Uh, we would see Gentiles who, you know, want part of this great blessing that it is to be Israel, these, these great temporal blessings. I mean, if I was a believer during that day and, and God was dwelling in the midst of a people, I, I would want to be there. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that that's the church, you know, from our perspective. I understand there's other factors involved there. Well, how, how would you understand Stephen's reference to the ecclesia in the wilderness in Acts chapter 7 in his sermon? He calls Israel in the wilderness the ecclesia, the church. 
Well, I, I think the translation, the church there, has a long history of, of controversy there. Um, I haven't had time to dig into it fully, but basically what it means is a congregation or an assembly. That's what the church, that's what, that's what kahal means in Hebrew, and that's what ecclesia means. And ecclesia yes. is used 70 times in the Septuagint. Referring to Israel, the church. Yeah, that, that's where Stephen's well, getting that. It's it's a congregation. It's an assembly. Yeah, so right. That's what that's what the church. word church means. Right. So the word church, the word church here has a certain connotation and baggage associated with it. But my point is that it's uh, it's an assembly. It's a congregation. Yes. It's the congregation of Israel, and so I would I have no problem referring to it as the congregation in the wilderness, the assembly in the wilderness. Uh, it doesn't mean it's the same thing as the assembly of the firstborn. Um, enrolled in heaven, uh, referenced in Hebrews 12. Uh, we would see the, the congregation, the assembly of Christ, as different from the congregation, the assembly of Israel. Well, that's obvious. In uh, Hebrews 11, it's talking about the elect and who are actually in heaven. This is talking about physical human beings in on earth right now, the ecclesia in the wilderness. There is no difficulty with the translation of that word. Ecclesia is one of the simplest words to translate. I'm just referring to the word church. The word church has certain baggage. That's all I meant. So it's it's literally just congregation or assembly. That's that's my only point. Assembly, congregation, and church are all acceptable glosses for the Hebrew term <laughs> for the Hebrew term. I understand. Kahal. I'm just commenting on the origin of the word church. It has a certain history around it. Okay. Well, you you said that. Well, you 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 think based on your study of scripture that that thing in the Old Testament was the church. I agree with Stephen when he calls it the church. I, that's all I'm saying. I, I he calls it that. <laughs> I agree with him. Okay. Um, I, I had another question. Um, did David, did David have a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith? Can you define uh, seal for me as you're using it? It's the the Greek term phragas uh, that's used in Romans four eleven. Um, it simply ha it's the efficacy of the the seal, the stamp of God. Meaning meaning what? Just just like Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. We know that David was a believer. He was justified by faith alone, too. Did David have the same thing Abraham had? Did he have a seal of the righteousness he had by faith? Uh, can you just elaborate on what you what you believe the word seal means as you're using it? It, it is like it is like the imprint, the impress of God, like on a like the stamp on an envelope, the seal of God. That's what sphragis means in Greek. Okay. And so how Abraham had circumcision. It was a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. Did David have a seal of the righteousness he had by faith? Okay. I'm just trying to draw that out because we have a different interpretation of what seal is referring to there. So I believe seal refers to a guarantee, um, a stamp as a guarantee. So I believe that God uh, guaranteed his promise to Abraham when he made the covenant with him. And that's what that refers to. I don't believe that it was a seal. Circumcision was a seal to everybody necessarily it was a seal to abraham of the promises that god made to abraham um so a circumcision means something different for other people outside of abraham does it mean something to him it never meant to anyone else it means to everybody else that god sealed in circumcision that he would fulfill his promise made to abraham it, it means that for everybody okay so what did david have a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith uh he had uh, he received circumcision. It's not, uh, I would not say that that was a sign and seal of his personal individual faith. No, I believe it was uh, a sign of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant and all of the blessings and conditions that that entailed. And it was a seal that God would fulfill his promise made to Abraham. So Abraham had a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith of his salvation, but David did not. How, however you want to try to phrase it, uh, 
circumcision, as Paul refers to in, in Romans 4, I would understand it as God um, guaranteeing that he would fulfill the promise that Christ would come and bless all nations and therefore establish the righteousness that Abraham's justification was based on. Okay. Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11, where you have circumcision instituted, says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised. Is there any indication in Genesis 17 that circumcision was a sign or seal of anything different to Abraham's infant seed than it was to him? It doesn't make any sense to me. Circumcision is what it is, regardless of who it's given to. The, the point is, David did have a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith, and he received it as an infant. My point is, I don't, I don't see any indication that circumcision... This, this is a problem. This is one of the, the main reasons um, that I... Never did find the Reformed Baptist position to be compelling is their attempts to to create different meanings for for the covenant sign when it always means the same thing to everyone it's given to. Um, Fred Malone is is very very crass. He just says, yeah, it, it meant something to Abraham. It never meant to anyone else after him. I'm just like, where where is the biblical proof that circumcision means something different depending on who it's given to? It it, it means what God says it means. Yeah, I, I think that um, we don't want to limit the meaning of circumcision circumcision simply to Paul's reference in Romans 4. I think it meant more than that. I think it meant what he said, obviously, but I think it meant more than that as well. Um, and I, you know, I don't have a problem. It, it meant the same thing to everybody. Okay. Um, it didn't meant they were to be considered a Christian. Yeah, right. But they were part of the well, church, though, right? Well, no, we that's we fundamentally disagree there. What what, what were Gentiles? Uh, no, it, it was not a sign of union with Christ as baptism is. But it was a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith. What righteousness did Abraham have by faith? Whose is it? It's Christ who was yet to come, and so the Abrahamic covenant promised that Christ would come and bless all nations. That's what's what it's a sign of. Right, but of Christ to come, but it's still it's still his righteousness. So what, what is your, I don't get what you mean. It, this is referring to the Historia Salutis, if we want to use those terms. It was a sign of Christ's righteousness in the Historia Salutis, not in the Ordo Salutis, as baptism would be. So what, where, where was the church? What is the church prior to the coming of Jesus Christ? If it's not, I mean, if it's not Israel in the wilderness, what is it? Who, who is it? Where is it? It's all those who believe. It was the believers amongst Israel. It was not organized as the church uh, until Pentecost. Why, why is the term church used? Why is kahal used and translated as, as ecclesia 70 times prior to the coming of Christ? In the because Old Israel, Israel was a type of the church. I mean, they're both called the nation as well. Does it mean that we are the nation of Israel living in the land of Canaan? No, it's a type anti-type relationship. The, the word assembly or congregation is not specific enough to say that they are the same entity. Um, it's, it's a type anti-type relationship. There. So how can, how, can, how can Israel be the church and be a type of the church israel was not the church israel was a type of the church but there People were with, but there were believers there right yes uh, there are believers in america that doesn't mean america is the church <laughs> but israel is referred to as the church it was the people who were set apart by circumcision and by their profession of faith like i mentioned d church discipline they, was there I, I, Again, you just 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 try to understand the, the presuppositions you're bringing. I, I understand it's based on your study of scripture, but you're just you're 
completely importing your perspective into your questions here. Um, as you are to your answers. <laughs> uh, okay, but you're just you're you're baffled here because you're assuming your perspective. I'm not baffled um, about a thing. So Brandon. you're. I'm not baffled about a thing. Okay. The the church. Um, the, there is a church prior to the coming of Christ. It was it was primarily made there there in Israel. Yes, there were definitely false professors of faith there in Israel, without a doubt. Just as there are today. Your question was, where was the church? And my answer was, the church was all those who were united to Christ. Uh, the nation of Israel was not the visible church as such. So it wasn't. So the okay, church it was a different. So the it church was a different entity. So the church prior to the coming of Christ is not those who profess faith in the coming Messiah or those who profess the faith of Abraham. Um, not in an organized manner, according to uh, God's command and, and directions for worship and things like that. Um, John Owen has a real helpful explanation of this in his commentary on Hebrews 8, where he talks about uh, what the word established means uh, with regards to the new covenant. He goes into detail on all of this and explains how it operated invisibly prior to this uh, without any external forms of worship or ordinances until Pentecost, until the new covenant was established. Well, the Old uh, Testament church did have external forms of worship and ordinances, didn't they? Okay, but you just keep asserting the same thing over and over. Brandon, you just question. keep asserting the same answer. Oh, did, didn't they go to Jerusalem three times a year for the, the feasts? Didn't they meet at synagogues for the reading of scripture? There, There's a disconnect here. You're, you're, there's some kind of misunderstanding. I, yes, absolutely. Israel had ordinances for worship. You just said they didn't. At, no, no. I said the church didn't. Okay, that's that's where you're... You're not listening to what I'm saying. I understand you disagree with me. Right. Right. But you just, you're not hearing what I'm saying. Uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, had external forms of worship. Absolutely. Israel was not the church. So I understand you disagree with that. You're just asking uh, my perspective. And I'm ex trying to explain it here so you can understand it, even if you disagree with it. Okay. What, what does the term kahal, assembly, congregation, church mean in the Old Testament when it's used over and over and over again? It refers to the nation of Israel, the assembly of Israel under the old covenant. But that's not the church. Correct. I see. It's a type of the church. I mean, I, it's, it's really, I, I don't know why that's such a bizarre concept. It's throughout Paedobaptist uh, literature, you can find them affirming that the nation of Israel was a type of the church. It is, it is a type of the church. Okay, then how, how can it be a type of the church and be the church? It, is, the it is certainly not exclusively a type because there, there are true believers in that church and that gathered people yeah. of God. And it's a mixed yeah. bag just like we have today. There, there are unbelievers in the church who have made professions of faith, who are baptized, who really are not part of the visible church. Or actually, they're, they're part of the visible church, but they're not, part, they're not of the elect and they're not truly regenerate and true believers. Right. And at this point, we're, we're kind of going to go around in circles a little bit here because we just have different definitions here. Um, I would say that um, the terms for being an Israelite are not the same things for being a member of the visible church. Um, what what about, right. Brandon, did you, did you have something you specifically wanted to ask me? Yeah, if we only have 10 minutes, I'd love to get into uh, some other things. But um, if you got one more, go for it. I'd... Oh, what, what is your take on, on households being baptized? And, and the you and your children, you have Covenant sign baptism, you, your children, as many as are far off. In Genesis 17, you have covenant sign circumcision, you, your descendants, and those who are not your descendants. All three categories. If, if the new covenant is emphasizing this, this really significant break with Old Testament um, practice, 
What, why, why would he put it that way, you and your children? And why do you see individuals believing in households being baptized? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, I think that in your presentation originally, there was just a lot of your perspective um, uh, presuppositions bleeding into that. You know, why wouldn't it be such a hard break? Well, you're, you're assuming the, your understanding of the Old Testament coming into the New Testament. Um, with regards to the household baptisms, I just I don't think they hold a lot of weight because they rest upon a prior understanding of the covenants that I disagree with. Um, the the household instances themselves are inconclusive. Uh, it can simply mean that everyone in the household believed and was baptized, as it indicates in in certain passages. I think Acts eight. Um, the with the repetition of the phrases um, to you and your offspring, those are f who are far off. I, I don't think it's quite the same as you're making it out to be. You have to stretch a little bit to make it exactly match Genesis 17. Um, I would refer to uh, Cal Beisner's comments on Acts 2:36. I think he has some good comments there. Um, there's a I uh, can link send Tim a link to put it up there. Well, why don't you um, share it with us? Um, hang on, let me pull it up. Just trying to be quick here because I didn't realize we only have 10 minutes left. I mean, it's, I mean, Brian, with all with all due respect, it's easy to say that kind of stuff. Let me let me refer you to you know 15 articles, and here's the guy who's refuted you. I'd rather just just hear it now. Okay. Well, the reason I do that is because people just like to dismiss anything that Baptists say. So if we can put it, it it's true. It's true. Uh, we're dismissed as just not understanding covenant theology and things like that. So I always try to substantiate the point with quotes from Pato Baptist, um, showing that. You know, this is not just nonsense that Baptists make up. Right. And I just invite people, read Genesis 17, 6 through 12, and then read Acts 2, 38 and 39. And just look at it and ask yourself the question, doesn't this sound awfully similar? Especially given the fact that the New Testament refers repeatedly over and over again to the Abrahamic covenant as the very thing that's fulfilled every single time someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I've got a question for you along those same lines. Uh, the promise is to you and your offspring after you. What specifically is that promise? The Holy Spirit. Okay, and so that is a promise made to who? Uh, that was the promise that God specifically made to Abraham, according to Paul in Galatians 3.14. Um, let me read it here for you. Uh, Galatians 3.14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Generally speaking, God works through the family unit. God works covenantally, and that was the promise made to Abraham. That's what that's what Paul thought. Was the promise made to Abraham, and it says the promise was made to you and your offspring after you. Who specifically is that offspring? Our children, the children of believers. So God promises to give the children of believers the Holy Spirit? No, if they believe just like Galatians 3.14 says, that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. They're heirs of that promise, but it does not come to fruition that they don't believe, just like it was prior to the coming of Christ. So the promise is conditional. Yep. If you believe, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Correct. Okay. So is there any difference? Is there any way in which God is promising something to the children of believers that he's not promising to everyone in the world? Yeah, uh, because they are heirs. They're born into families that have those commands in Psalm 78, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 21, Ephesians 6. Their parents are covenantally charged to raise those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so we teach our children to pray. We call them to repentance and faith. We teach them that they are participants, not observers, in the worship of God in churches. Just like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, not... I'm going to serve the Lord and I'll bring my kids with me and they're not really going to be part of this, but 
Hopefully at some point they'll be part of it. No, because of the household solidarity, you teach your children, they are heirs of that promise, but it doesn't come to fruition if they don't believe. Okay, so I, I'm just, I'm not quite clear in the answer there. How is the promise to your children different from the promise to everyone else? Because generally speaking, God works through the organic principle. If parents are faithful, generally speaking, God saves their children. It's not a guarantee. So I, it's not It's not a guarantee. So, but so God's promise is not a guarantee? It's, it's always conditioned on faith. I mean, the Abrahamic covenant itself is conditioned on faith. Uh, again, we're, it's just kind of dancing around. It's Yeah, you're God, dancing around your presuppositions. I mean, in, in the way you're asking the question. It's like, you got, what, what does a Baptist do with all this you and your children stuff? I mean, how, well, how does I, that fit anything that, that you guys believe? I would love to elaborate, uh, given the time. We're, we're trying to focus on some specific things here, and we've only got a few minutes left. So, the promise is that if you repent and believe, you will be saved and receive the Holy Spirit. That promise is made to everyone in the world. Yes. But not everyone in the world is born into the covenant family as children okay. are. So, so their situation is different, but the promise is not different. No. No, okay, what, you so... see, what you see is continuity there in the administration of the covenant. Okay, so the, the promise of Genesis 17, I will be a God to you and to your offspring after you. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit, that God will be a God to them if they repent and believe. Yeah, that's what Paul thought, and I agree with him. Okay, and so that the Genesis 17 promise is made to everyone in the world. It, at the time of Abraham, there was no sense in which it applied to Abraham and his children, that it didn't apply to Melchizedek and his children or anyone else in the world. God promised, I will be a God to you if you repent and believe, and to your offspring if they repent and believe, and I will be God to anyone in the world if they repent and believe. Right. No, you're, you're, you're using, you're, you're just dancing a jig because you have your Baptist presuppositions in place. Well, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm asking you a direct question about the content of the promise. Right. The, the promise was to him and to his descendants, yeah, if they, if they believed. It's the, same, it's the same as it is now. The visible church has always included, just like it did then, just like it does now, those who profess to know the one true God, those who profess to know Jesus Christ along with their children. That's why children are addressed directly uh, in, the new in the New Covenant Scriptures as part of churches. Okay, so it's uh, it, my point here is that if you believe that the promise is that God will be a God to you if you repent and believe, then there's nothing uniquely Abrahamically covenantal about that promise. It's the same promise that's since Genesis 3.15 and applies to everyone in the world. It's not a unique Yes, and that's, and that's why it was open to everyone in the world. And God wanted his people to be a light to the Gentiles. And God made a provision for them to be able to partake the Passover and join the church if they were circumcised and their households were circumcised in Exodus 12.48. And, and circumcision is based on that promise. Those to whom the promise is extended are those who should be circumcised? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the whole world should be circumcised. If they if they uh, came in contact with the people of Israel and heard the gospel and heard about the coming Messiah, yes, definitely. Don't you think? I mean, what does Exodus twelve forty eight mean? If a sojourner, if a stranger, a non-Jew wants to join with you all and partake of the Passover, let him be circumcised in all the males in his household. So yes, the whole world needed to be circumcised unto God and become part of the church. You bet. Okay. And your comment there is, 
not all those to whom the promise goes out should be circumcised, but all those who respond to the promise in faith should be circumcised is what you're answering there. And their children, yes. This is another very common but, error. This is a very common see the, error. The circul- this the is circular a very common error here. that you guys make. You guys make this error constantly. You, you, you think that we're saying that everyone in the whole world should just be baptized. No. What we're saying is that adults that understand the faith and profess belief in it should be circumcised before the coming of Christ or baptized after the coming of Christ, and they bring their household into the visible church with them. That's what I, that's what I spent most of that opening statement trying to show that there, there is no evidence that that has changed at all. None that I'm aware of. Okay, let's move on here because the time is short. Uh, I appreciate your answers here. Um, how do you, what do you understand the Old Covenant to be? The Old Covenant um, in Jeremiah 31 is the covenant I made with them when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That is the Sinaitic Covenant. That's the law. That's not the Abrahamic promise. It can't be. If you look at in Hebrews chapter 6, just two chapters before this, we're told that the Abrahamic Covenant is immutable. It can't, no, no part so I, of it yeah, can. I, yeah, I, I heard your presentation there. So you believe the Abrahamic Covenant is the same as the... New Covenant. No, and that's an error. That's a misrepresentation. Brandon, that's a misrepresentation that you've made over and over and over and over again. I do not believe the Abrahamic Covenant is the New Covenant. One is the pre-Advent administration of the gospel. The other is the post-Advent administration of the gospel. They're not the same covenant, but they have the same benefits, clearly. That's why Paul belabors the point in Romans 4. Abraham is justified by faith prior to the giving of the law. David justified by faith after the law. We're justified by faith after Christ. Okay. The historic Reformed tradition understands it as one covenant. That's why I'm using that language. But you believe the Abrahamic covenant and the the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant are two different covenants. They are not the same in kind, not the same in substance, not the same in essence. Is that, that what you believe? That's what Paul says in Galatians 4, 21 to 31. They are two covenants. One gives rise to children of bondage, the other who are children of promise. If you think that those are the same covenant, like I said, I don't, I don't know. How, how do you make any sense out of what Paul says about justification? The law brings about wrath. We're justified on the basis of the promise that we receive by faith, just like Abraham believed and was justified by faith. Okay. A uh, couple couple comments here. First of all, we're just short on time. I was planning on getting into all of this in much more detail. I didn't realize um, we got to stop here. Um, but uh, I would encourage everybody to read the OPC report on republication, where they specify very clearly that the idea that um, the Mosaic Covenant was different in kind and substance from the Abrahamic Covenant and the New Covenant is contrary to the Westminster Standards. Uh, I would encourage everybody to read that report and understand the reasoning there and, and why that view is contrary to the Westminster Standards. Right, and I don't uh, hold to the republication view. Again, that's another misrepresentation. Uh, the, I'm not the old, misrepresenting, the brother. I just asked you. Why, why do you keep saying Mosa- you're, you're saying that? Go read this OPC report to see why, why uh, Mr. Hines is wrong. I don't believe in the republication. The, the old covenant is definitely given in the context of grace. It's given in the context of redemption. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. God hears the people groaning in Egypt and goes to redeem them and bring them out in response to the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, indeed. But when you look at the way that those two covenants are laid out and explained in the New Testament, you can't see them as the same covenant. Paul doesn't see them as the same covenant. One is promise, one is law. Now, they're both part of the unfolding of the covenant of grace, but they clearly have different functions. The law is there to show us our sin. If you start saying 
that the law is actually, in its essence, gracious, then you're going to end up believing Rome's gospel, that we're saved by, by a gracious acceptance of our obedience to the law or something like that. You do have to keep them distinct, as Paul does in Galatians 2.21. If they're the same covenant, if they're the same covenant, how can one give rise to children of bondage and the other give rise to children of the promise? That's all I'm saying. Okay. I understand. Uh, I would just encourage people to, to study more on this issue because you're not quite, based on your answers here, you're not quite grasping or indicating you, you understand the depth of the Republican debate. Um, the hey, Brandon, uh, that, that's, hey, Brandon, in, Brandon, I would appreciate it if you wouldn't talk to me like that. I'm just okay. saying based on I mean, your Brandon, answers. So, the majority of what you said has indicated to me there's a lot you don't understand. I'm not going to sit here and say that. I'll, I'll leave it to the listeners to decide that for themselves. Okay, that's fine. Um, the um, do you distinguish between law and covenant? You referred to the Mosaic covenant as the law. Do you distinguish between the law and the Mosaic covenant in any way? Well, they're certainly related to one another because the giving of the law certainly is a covenant, except it's different from the Abrahamic promise because you have. Uh, three times in Exodus chapter 19 and then in Exodus chapter 24 verses 3 and 7 the people swear an oath of obedience to it uh, when God makes the oath to Abraham he passes through the severed halves of the pieces all by himself the smoking fire pot and the, and the oven passed between the severed pieces and Abraham is off to the side asleep so the, the law it, it definitely is a covenant that requires obedience to receive its blessings okay what were its blessings uh, of the law well of the Mosaic covenant that they could live and live and dwell in the land and not come under those curses. And they, I mean, they're, they're spelled out in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the covenant curses and the covenant blessings. Uh -huh. And that was not by faith, but through obedience to the yeah, law. You do this and you shall live. Do this and you shall live is, is the, uh, is ba ba the basic message of the law. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, uh, the law is not of faith, uh, but the one who does them shall live by them. It, it required obedience for blessing. So what, what, I don't get, I don't understand what you're getting at. Are you, are you saying there's a hard well, distinction between law I mean, and covenant? This is, uh, sorry, go ahead. What you, you don't get what? <clears throat> are you saying there's a, there's a hard distinction between law and covenant? Yes, that's correct. Based on Westminster's uh, 7.1, also held by the London Baptist Confession, uh, there's the moral law, which is a rule, uh, uh, a rule of righteousness, a rule of obedience for all image bearers. And the covenant of works is something <clears throat> above and beyond that. Uh, covenant, uh, a law can be given as a covenant, uh, but the law itself is not a covenant. And so the way that uh, the historic reform position would explain the Mosaic covenant, that it was a law given not as a covenant, it was given as a rule of righteousness, it was the covenant of grace, um, and that uh, various Judaizers abused that, they abstracted the law uh, from the Mosaic covenant itself, um, and abused it in that way, they would deny that um, it operated upon a basis of works for Israel in any way that was only an abuse or abstraction or misunderstanding of the law. And that's specifically what the OPC report on republication explains, um, that to, to hold the view that you just described, um, that the law was given to Israel uh, to govern their land and life in Canaan upon a works principle contrary to a faith principle is contrary to the West. No, 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 no. Obviously, even even their obedience had to arise from faith. I, I'm not holding that view that you're trying very hard to attribute to me. I, I understand. Well, I'm just trying to understand, understand your perfectly. view is all. I understand okay. that so, perfectly. So you quoted Leviticus 18.5. Right. 
as... Are you saying the so, law did not require obedience at all? No, it's certainly not what I'm saying at all. You said... What what was your quotation of Leviticus 18.5 for? What did you mean by that? The, the law, the one who does them shall live by them. To be justified okay. before God by law requires absolute perfect obedience to it. The one who does them shall live by them. Okay, you, you quoted that in the context of explaining the condition of the Mosaic Covenant. Did I misunderstand you? Is that the condition of the Mosaic Covenant? The Mosaic Covenant required obedience to everything God said in the book of the covenant that was given to the people of Israel in order for them to dwell in the land. And it, and it arose from hearts that were purified by faith. Yes, indeed. Okay, so Leviticus 18.5, I'm just trying to understand you. Leviticus 18.5 lays out the condition for those within the covenant of grace who have been born again? That's how I would understand it, yeah. How do you understand it? What does Leviticus 18.5 mean? Uh, Leviticus 18.5 would lay out the condition of the Mosaic Covenant that life and blessing in the land of Canaan is conditioned upon mo uh, obedience to Mosaic Law. That's what I just said, and you're saying that's an error. That's that's republication. That, that's the republication error. Isn't that what you just said? Okay. I, it's a complicated argument. I'm trying to trace out the threads here and understand what you believe about the Old Covenant because it's central to the disagreement between us here. And a lot of Paedobaptists that I have talked to don't understand the implications for the Paedobaptism debate um, for certain views of the Old Covenant. So I'm trying to draw out your understanding, you know, nuances of your understanding here. Um, so Leviticus 18.5, Paul quotes that in Galatians 3.12 as being a condition, a principle contrary to the condition of faith. You would agree with that? Okay, so Leviticus 18.5 is a works condition, a works um, principle, contrary to a faith principle. Is that what you're saying? That's how I would understand it, yeah. I'm looking at Galatians 3, uh, 10 uh, through 14 here. When it okay. comes to so, justification, go ahead. So the condition of the Mosaic Covenant was a condition contrary to the principle of faith. Is that how you understand it? When it comes to being made right with God, that, that's how Paul explains it. Okay, and how is he, what is Paul's understanding of Leviticus 18.5 in its own context? He who practices them, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. In that context, I mean, are you asking me how does Paul understand it as it was originally written in Leviticus? I'm trying to understand what you believe Leviticus 18.5 means in the context of the covenant of the Mosaic Covenant compared to the Abrahamic Covenant. Okay. In the Mosaic Covenant, the, the laws that are given there in the Pentateuch, um, they had to obey those. Uh, in order to to live in the land. And that's why they're eventually exiled, because they fail to obey those. And all those covenant curses that are pronounced by all the prophets come down on them. They, the the, the uh, prophets explicate the covenant curses that are spelled out in Deuteronomy uh, 27 and 28. Is that how you understand it, I, I guess? Yes. So, so the Mosaic covenant is different in substance, different in kind from the covenant of grace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
but it's but it comes under the the broader heading of the covenant of grace. It just has a cert, it has a different function. Okay, but it's not the covenant of grace. It's not. Um, it is because part. It can, is part of the unfolding of the one covenant of grace. Yes, it is. Well, that's that's different. Is it the covenant of grace, or does it serve the purpose no, of the covenant? No, I, I would of grace. look at the Abrahamic covenant as the covenant of grace. Okay, but the Mosaic covenant is not. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how does the Mosaic covenant relate to the fulfillment of the land promise made to Abraham? Because Christ fulfills the law perfectly, and we inherit not the typological land, but the entire cosmos itself, the new heavens and the new earth, in Christ. Okay, but on the typological layer, how, do, how does that relate? Uh, the, the promise that God made um, to bring Abraham's offspring into the land of Canaan, you said faith was the condition. Right. And then you believe it became works was the condition after that? Well, the, the law um, was put, was added to it later, yeah. And that when their disobedience to it is what got them exiled. But they had they had to have faith. I mean, Hebrews 3, 8, 18 and 19 says that, that the generation that died in the wilderness, they did not enter because of unbelief. So you didn't get justified. You, you weren't justified before God and you didn't enter the land unless you believed. Yeah, there's a there's a lot more we can get into. But uh, you keep going back to Galatians 4 here. Uh, just to explain our perspective here, we would see Galatians 4 as referring to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant rather than contrasting the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, we would say that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant both flow out of the Abrahamic Covenant. Um, the Old Covenant refers to the first typological Abrahamic promise, and the New Covenant refers to the second anti-typological Abrahamic promise concerning uh, Christ coming to bless all nations. And so we would see um, Paul in Galatians 4 and parallel there in, in Romans 9 explaining the difference between the Old and New Covenant uh, and the, the mention there of Isaac as a um, as a, the promised seed um, is a type of Christians as a promised seed. They're not one for one. Uh, uh, Isaac would be a type of Christians who were the promised seed. So anyways, there's a lot more, but um, you can comment if you want. I know you have to get going. I'll send a, a link. I preached, I've preached um, all the way through the book of Genesis and uh, tried to go to the passages in the New Testament where the, the passages are cited. Uh, so I did um, an entire sermon on Galatians 4, 21 to 31. I can uh, send you a link to that, and you can put it in the show notes if you'd like to, Tim. Yes, of course. Uh, whatever you guys give me, I'm going to put up in the show notes, and I want to encourage all of our listeners to look into the show notes, uh, become familiar with both sides. Uh, I think that there's so much more that could be said about this, and we just don't really have the time. But, uh, you know... I want to leave on a positive note because as it says in Proverbs 27:17, iron sharpens iron. And as Carlos and I always point out, what happens when iron sharpens iron? Well, sparks fly and it gets hot. So we saw a little bit of that today, but I think that we can end on a positive note. I know that you two affirm each other as brothers and uh, you all are grateful for each other. Um, so Pastor Hines, uh, thank you for coming on and Brandon, thank you for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and thanks Brandon for the conversation. It's okay. You know, I, <laughs> I, I am a pretty hard person to offend. So, um, I, I'm not, I'm not up, upset or offended uh, at all. 
Um, I, I enjoyed the the interaction um, and certainly regard you as a, a dear brother. And I've always valued what my Reformed Baptist brethren say. And when they when new books come out, I usually try to pick them up and read them because I do value what you guys have to say. And it, it does it definitely keeps us on our toes. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your time as well. Uh, yeah, it's it's a huge conversation because we're really talking about all of Scripture, uh, and that's a that's a lot to talk about. So, you know, from my perspective, we really just kind of touched the uh, tip of the iceberg here. But I appreciate the time and and uh, yeah. If you notice, I mean, even even in our opening statements, both of us actually said very little about baptism. <laughs> I mean, even yeah. when I when I wrote this up, I th- I thought, man, I haven't even gotten to baptism yet. <laughs> we're just talking about covenant theology and the way we understand everything else because because all that goes into it so you know pastor Hines, you're you're right you guys really didn't talk too much about baptism but uh it was still a great discussion on covenant theology and uh and baptism there was uh some stuff mentioned about baptism but i'm probably gonna have to figure out what to name this probably a discussion on covenant theology and baptism uh but brandon i know that pastor Hines wanted me to put some stuff in the show notes uh, was there anything else that you wanted to add? Let me uh, let me just throw in one more comment. Um, this is just such a huge conversation. Uh, if if somebody wants to understand more of where I'm coming from on, on all these issues, they can go to my blog, uh, contrast2.wordpress.com. That main page will break down a bunch of posts by category, the New Covenant, the Old Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, anyways, if somebody wants to dig in more and understand where I'm coming from. All right. And we will go ahead and close it out with that. I want to say thank you again to our listeners and, uh, we will check everybody next week. God bless. God bless.